find a passion and do it until the wheels fall off, 100%. What is happening everyone? This is Amplify What You Love and I'm your host Kaylee Marks. Today I have athletics teacher, coach, and mentor Anthony Thomas, host of A Long Way From The Block podcast. He is also a radio show host of the Dialogues of Jazz show and is an extraordinary fellow and I'm so happy to have him on here. He's also a good friend and client of mine who launched his podcast through our program Amplify What You Love. And so now here we are a year later after he launched his show and he is here in Austin in my podcast studio and I get to talk to you. Welcome, man. It's so great to have you here. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. I, th I think I first have to say no matter you know how we get started is a huge thank you to you personally. Because if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have a podcast, right? You walked me through like stage one all the way to launching. I had no idea what I was doing, especially from a technical point of view and even just from like interview skills and, and getting comfortable on the microphone. So thank you so much for taking the time. You know, I know I was kind of a, a nuisance at times <laughs> calling at, at any hour of the night asking questions. But you walked me through, like I said, stage one all the way to launch, man. So much appreciation for that. You're so welcome, man. It's, it's been a joy. And you know, what's interesting is you came into my funnel through Facebook ads. It's really extraordinary that the, you know, the internet and some random right. picture on the net and then some emails, and then you ended up booking a call with me and to be able to find someone that I resonated with so much like you and your mission and your vision behind your show, it's pretty extraordinary. So thank you for putting out such a great so many great conversations. I mean, you're at episode 50 now. We were talking a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, so there's 48 episodes in a year and here you are coming on your year mark right. and you have 50 incredible conversations. And so what I wanted to start off with is how did you come up with a long way from the block? Like, what is that title? Maybe you could explain to the listeners a little bit about your thought process there. Yeah. So I think I kind of came up with the title maybe a few years ago when I was traveling abroad and I was in Amsterdam, right? Which is interesting because as a child growing up in my neighborhood, I didn't even know about these places. I didn't even know they existed. I had no idea what, what they were, you know, places like Prague and Czech Republic and, you know, Amsterdam and, you know, even parts of France, you know, I didn't even know they existed. So years later, here I am in uh, Amsterdam, and there's a little small community, almost like a village-like place there called Broke uh, in Waterloo. It's like a little, small, little town that almost looks like, like The Hobbit, you know? The Shire. Yeah, just like, it's like very magical. And it's outside of the city of Amsterdam. So we stayed there in this little town. And just one day I'm just walking through and it's like very magical and lush and green and animals and like little bridges and just like incredible gardens and like little boat houses and stuff. And I'm just walking and I'm like, wow, like this is seriously a long way from the block. Like, like literally and just like, you know, mentally and all kinds of ways, right? So it just hit me like, I cannot believe like from where I came from that I'm in this place on another part of the world that I never knew existed. 
And so that kind of just started that whole like phrase, you know, I think it's kind of always been there a little bit, but it just hit me really hard when I was in this magical town, you know, and so I kind of like been putting that in motion and kind of using that phrase. And then when I thought of the podcast, I was like, yeah, this fits perfectly. And then I can explain it in a lot more different details about, you know, people coming from certain places and and being a long way from the block. So that's kind of where it started. I remember on kind of some of our original brainstorming calls, you're talking about that. And, you know, you're a teacher, you're an athletics teacher at a Waldorf school, you're a coach, you mentor students and kids. And it seems like mentorship in general as a as a as sort of a value is important in your life. And part of the long way from the block premise that I remember was you wanted to show people it was possible to get a long way from the block from where you start is not where you have to end. And yeah. you can, you can kind of transform your path. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And also, you know, not forgetting about the block where you came from, you know, cause that's like my foundation, like the block and the neighborhood and the rec center and the community is the foundation, you know, in my life, but not being confined to it. You know, taking those tools and skills from coaches and mentors and other athletes in the neighborhood who have done incredible things and realizing that you can go anywhere you want. You know, there's a, uh, uh, Karis one, the great, uh, rapper who I love. One of my favorites, he has a line where he says, but all I really got is hip hop and a Glock. The results are obvious if I'm confined to my block. How they got wealth, let me talk about myself. But all I really got is hip hop and a Glock. The results are obvious if I'm confined to my block. Reality ain't always the truth. Rhymes equal actual life in the youth. Reality ain't always the truth. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly right. If that's all you think you have, you know, the results are going to be pretty obvious. So, you know, having mentors and incredible coaches over the years has been so helpful to me. So I figured like that's a great way to give back and then show like you don't have to just stay right here. You can still keep a lot of the things that you got from there, but you got to expand. And just traveling is one way just physically to do it, because when you do that, it opens you up in so many different ways. Right. And then, like I said, you can always go back. You can always still be amongst the people you grew up with. But it is good to see, you know, what expansion looks like. So you're not leaving anything behind necessarily. Maybe you are, but you're not just blanket leaving everything behind. But you are going, getting more perspective and kind of reapproaching where you came from with new eyes, with new vision. And so one of the things that sparked my curiosity the most about you and that I've been realizing in general is that not everyone shares a value around mentorship. Not like I've asked several people, you know, who, who are idols or heroes or mentors that have been really important to you. And, and it's always shocking when, when people don't have any. Mm -hmm. So what was it about your life that kind of opened you up to that being something that mattered to you? And maybe who were some of the early influences uh, in your life? Yeah, I've been blessed. I guess you could say with having some of the most incredible uh, early on men in my life. Like, it's just, I, I mean, I can't really explain why, you know, that happened. But like from early on, like my first coach who I interviewed on my podcast, Rick JV, was like a father figure to me and everybody in the neighborhood. He was the rec leader. 
He was an incredible athlete. He was firm, you know, disciplined, but he also did so much for us, right? Like he would buy us shoes, uh, uniforms. He'd take us out to eat, uh, trophies, you know, and all these things you don't realize that somebody has to pay for all that, right? You just think it's like magical money appears when you go to pizza and you get to eat as much as you want and drink as much as you want and you don't ever pay for any of that, right? And then he takes you home and just so much of that at an early age and then realizing that my mom trusted him, which was very important, right? So once you realize that your, your parent has that trust in this person, I think it makes you have trust in this person, right? So that was really early on. We're talking like probably I started working with him when I was like maybe eight years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. Doing sports. Sports. What yeah. sport? Uh, everything. We, so we did flag football, basketball, and softball. He was your athletics coach and yeah. teacher. Yeah. Okay. But, he, but he was the rec leader. So even when we're not playing, we're still hanging out with him all the time. And unlike today, uh, the rec was the hub for everything. Right. And we were a part of it. We weren't separate from it. Right. So we could go in the office and hang out with them and pump up the balls and and assign stuff to younger kids. Like we were actually part of the rec, like almost like volunteer workers. So he was always there that we could go there for anything. So I had that early on, which was great. So that kind of set the table going forward. So once I have this one person so early on and at an impressionable age, it's like the bar is set so high. And then so many coaches following him still were all at a high standard, like all the way up through high school. So my little league baseball coach was also phenomenal. Robert Hardy, he was like tough and like didn't take no stuff, but was great. Go over his house for barbecues and hang out and meet his mom and his family and all that stuff. And then Yogi, who I've interviewed, it's just one of the most respected people in my neighborhood, you know, still today. Like everybody loves Yogi. He was also one of my coaches and kind of a peer of Rick JV, a little bit younger, basketball star. We all went to the same high school. Rick JV went to Hoover. Yogi went to Hoover. I went to Hoover. Everybody, you know, who we looked up to and all the legends all went to Hoover. So I just had all these different people, you know, in my neighborhood that were like kind of took me under their wing and like made sure I was safe, you know, made sure I understood like the craft of the, of the sport, you know what I mean? Not just to, just to play. It's like understand the game, what it means, like how to be a leader, you know, how to inspire other people through sports. So I had that early on and it just kind of like made me, as I got older, think how important that was and then just kind of like decide to do the same thing you know, in different ways. It's a little bit more difficult today because of technology and social media to kind of connect with the kids. You just got to work a little bit harder. How, tell me more about that. Like, is it that they're more distracted? Yeah, they're just more distracted. A lot of them don't have the same community foundation, right? So rec centers are like, have no funding no more. So they don't even really exist as like a really like a hub for the community. They're just kind of there. And so that's loss. Rec, the concept of like a rec leader as being like, like an elder and a community activist, that just doesn't even exist hardly anymore. Mm -hmm. So that makes it harder for you to come in because it's like you don't have the same amount of like 
like help, I would say, right? And so there you're trying to implement your ideas and they're just all over the place with all different things, right? Like islands. Yeah, yeah. I was getting the, the picture almost that part of what helped you to respect your mentors was almost the community respecting them. It was like there was sort of a, you know, your your mom trusted your first coach. There was, there was a little bit of um, almost not proof, but just community backing on some of these people that helped you feel like they're, they're credible people, they're worth they're worth listening to. It wasn't just, uh, it, you know, where I'm getting to with this is it's the breakdown of community that causes so many issues in society. And when you have a strong community, the the leaders kind of rise and mm-hmm. can be recognized. Not always, obviously, there's horrible, yeah. perverted examples and, yeah. and fascists and all sorts of stuff, right? But <laughs> yeah. in, in a good sense, you get you get really powerful coaches and mentors and leaders rising up that are recognized by m- multiple people, which instills even more faith mm-hmm. in the newer generation and stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, to, to just like simplify the whole thing, like they were our heroes. They were our first real heroes outside the house. And to me, when you have that, you know, you can take that all the way through life. You know, when you have those kind of strong heroes at a young age. Yeah. 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 Heroes, it's a great it's a great way to put it. And it's it's role models too, right? It's like I want to be like that person. Mm-hmm. There's some aspect about that person that I'm willing to work for, work towards in myself. Like I want to achieve that. I want to achieve that level and skill. I want to achieve, um, you know, that mindset. I want to achieve those results. Something about those people that inspire us to grow beyond where we're at. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I want to get even deeper into some of that stuff, but I am curious, like, so now that you're in schools, you're mentoring and coaching and teaching kids, what are some of the greatest challenges you're seeing? And also what are some of the greatest strengths of this generation? Cause you're, you know, you're on the front line basically. Yeah. So I think the challenges, and these could be, you know, always challenges is the generation gap, right? So trying to connect with them at their level, right? I think is very important because you don't want to be so far removed that you're just the old guy talking and it, it doesn't relate to them. They can't make the connection, right? So uh, a martial arts master once told me that when, when he's playing with his students, right, he has to sort of come down to their level to a certain degree, play with them, and then gradually bring them up in the game. If he goes below their level, they won't respect him and they won't find any value in it. If he stays way too high, they'll look at it as being unreachable and get frustrated and maybe lose interest. So it's a fine dance. It's really, I I find it to be one of the most incredible things to do is to find that balance of being right with them, but having the skill to raise them up a little bit, a little bit at a time. And before you know it, that kid is now way up here and he doesn't even realize like kind of like how it happened. But you have to have the skill to move around like this, right? The kid can only stay here. He can't come up here. So how does he get there? So I always thought that was interesting. So I try to do that and I can relate with them, whether it's music or whatever they're into. Right. And so I'll I use music or, or in athletics as a way as like a, uh, a way in the door. Right. 
And then from there, once they trust and understand where I'm coming from, then I can kind of bring them up slowly, you know, through like a progression of, uh, you know, different ways and, 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 and things that I do. So, but it's always, uh, it's different. That's what makes it so interesting because you can't do the same thing for every kid. And talking about my first coach, Rick JV, everybody from my neighborhood doesn't view him the same way that I do. Even though they were all right there, they all played for him, they all didn't take his life lessons the same way I did. And that could be for whatever different reasons, different households, different temperaments. They would take something he say, maybe they took it too personal and didn't have the trust. It could be a, a million different things. Rapport too, right? Rapport, like they, he yelled at him on the wrong day. Sure. All these different things that you just don't know. So it's, it's kind of complicated, but I think at the end of the day, your presence with the kids and your honesty and your passion for what you do will allow you to go places with them. And that's kind of what I try to bring is that like passion about what I'm doing, right? Because that kind of like people feed off of that, right? So when I'm dealing with them and I deal with a lot of them very differently, you know, and I deal with them differently if it's an individual or if I'm talking to the whole group, right? So, you know, but it's all, it's, it's challenging. It's definitely, the challenge is I'm up against most people that don't have a community foundation. So it's like, it's almost like parenting and you're and it's only the parent as opposed to the whole community helping you parent. It's so much different when you have the community, right? So when I grew up, all my friends' moms and some dads were also parenting me. So the burden doesn't all fall on my mom. Because mm-hmm. if it does, that's almost a no-win situation. It's too much. It's the, it takes a village thing. And exactly. it sounds like your block was really awesome. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the neighborhood that you grew up in because it yeah. sounds like that was part of it. Yeah, it was like um, in the interview with Yogi, he used a word that I often use. He said our neighborhood was paradise. Wow. Yeah. And this is San Diego, right? San Diego, um, East San Diego, which we shortened to East Dago. Uh, technically now is what's, what's called City Heights. Mm-hmm. But to be very specific, it was just Highland Park, which was a rec center across the street from my house. So that was the hub. So every day we met there. Every day we did something there. <laughs> From just playing hide and seek, tackle football, strikeout, caroms, ping pong, pitching pennies, shooting dice, everything happened there. And it was people from all levels. So there was like, you know, grown folks and little kids. There was a playground, just all kinds of stuff. But it was paradise, but it was also dysfunctional. Hmm. How so? Because with these communities comes with like problematic things, you know, like, so a lot of households were, were just single moms, right? So that comes with a lot of, a lot of issues. Um, and it also, uh, you know, you have, like I said, if, if, like I said in the, in the quote song, if you're just confined to that, like, uh, kind of bang up against each other, you know, for, for whatever reasons, right? Because you haven't expanded enough, right? So everything just kind of like, it's like, in, it's kind of, it could be volatile, mm-hmm. right? And then what happened was the gang and drug culture seeped its way in to the community. 
which was the downfall of everything. Mm. And so I, I saw that happen. Would you say that was the end of the paradise? Like, that was the total end of the paradise. Because I was going to say that there's an aspect of gang culture that is fulfilling the same need yes. that the coaching and the mentorship is. Of like rite of passage, belonging, brotherhood, older men, stronger men, teaching other men. You know, there there's some noble... Like an honor amongst thieves kind yeah. of things in gang culture, absolutely, and it's it's not so disjointed from military culture. It's yeah. not so disjointed from just really healthy fraternities. fraternities. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was wondering kind of what what that intersection was in, in San Diego at that time. Yeah. So what's 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 so interesting is my neighborhood is is why I love it so much and why I think it's one of the most special neighborhoods like ever. I'm sure. Most people from their neighborhood think their neighborhood is very special, and it probably is. But originally, my neighborhood was not a gang neighborhood. We had gang neighborhoods in different areas, but mine uh, wasn't originally. So that's what the paradise part comes from. It was just a bunch of incredible athletes and kids and having fun and free lunch programs in the summer and uh, people would come out and DJ and play music, and they set up this portable swimming pool, and it was just incredible. And then, you know, we played Little League Baseball and Pop Warner Football, and we had all this stuff. But the gang pull is so strong at, for these young kids that other gangs would start to come into the neighborhood and kind of be influential. And so we're looking at it like, well, we kind of want to be a gang too. Like we fit all the, the things to, to do that, right? And so that pool was so strong that we ended up kind of like turning our neighborhood into a gang. And then, so then once you do that, you're just open to everything. Now you got the whole rivalries and the, everything's going on. And so it starts to go downhill from there. And then when the drugs come in, it just separates everything, right? And the big problem was Rick JV, who was, uh, you know, our hero, ended up having a drug addiction, mm. right? And so it's like our our hero and leader like fell. 100%. That's like one of the most destabilizing things for especially young people, but anyone when you place someone, not that, that there's anything wrong with doing this, but it's like we can place people on a pedestal yeah. and think they're superheroes. Right. And then when, when we realize they're messy humans, it's like a dark night of the soul where our meaning and our foundation and our rock gets completely shattered. Yeah. No, it's, it's unbelievable. And, you know, I don't mind saying this because he talks about it in the interview because uh, it's a very important part um, of his journey because he got past all that. But for that part of time, it was very, very tough, right? And so we just saw all of that just kind of lead to the crumbling of the whole neighborhood. And then people started getting involved in selling the drugs. Mm -hmm. And that comes with a problem. So now you have best friends, childhood friends, teammates, you know, athletic teammates now fighting each other, shooting at each other, killing each other, going to prison, telling on people, just coming back from prison, going back and forth still selling drugs, all of this is now becoming part of the community. Mm -hmm. So that's where all the dysfunction comes and it's just like, like downhill from there. And I feel like 
part of my podcast is is to like remind people from my community what it was like before all of that happened. Because there's a lot of people who only associate my neighborhood with that part of it. Because it's, you know, that's that's what the exciting part, the, the shootouts and the running from the police and, you know, the gang violence and the rivalries and, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's also the traumatic part, so it's it kind of yeah. sticks out more. It sticks out more, and that's the thing that people feel like everybody wants to hear. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, remember when we did this, this, and this? And I'm like, no. Remember when we beat William J. Oaks Boys Club for the basketball championship, and we were down by a lot, and Rick J.V. yelled at us at halftime and motivated us, and we came back from like the greatest game ever in San Diego history and won that championship. That excitement and the energy of that game to me supersedes all of these gang shootouts. Even though I wasn't like involved in gang shootouts, I'm still present when some of it's happening. So I'm trying to say, no man, remember how you felt when we came back and won that game? That's more what you should be connecting with, what our community was like then. Not, this is also part of it, but let's not make this the like focal point of the whole thing, just because it's like a fascinating story and everybody loves to hear about like gang culture. Yeah, well, and, and you're, you're a lover of stories and it's like your whole show is, is based on, on interviewing these elders and masters and experts and yeah. artists and, and like, what what are some of the ones that have stood out to you the most that you could share with the audience right now um, that have moved you or inspired you or motivated you or reminded you the most of those times? What, what are some of your standout interviews? Uh, well, my most listened to interview was with Yogi. And I just think it just for many different reasons, like his his rapport, his demeanor, his memory is like phenomenal. So it brought so many people back to so many different things. And what's great about him is he's, uh, he's Mexican, right? And so most of our neighborhood was, was black folks, but our neighborhood was so, it was just so great that like the fact that he was Mexican was irrelevant, right? Because he's one of the best basketball players in the neighborhood, highly respected, and just a quality, quality person. Right. So I think the interview with him was so special because, like I said, the things that he remembered and brought back to life were just so great. And he was actually at the he's older than me. So he was at the park before I was. So he could tell stories of what it was like even before I was there, which was fascinating for me to hear. Right. So that was great. And just hearing his his journey was just, I think, equally as great too, you know, just because, you know, he was a basketball star at Hoover. He was, and he's very well connected with a lot of different people. So he knows like the gang leaders from like all over Mm. and they highly respect him still today. But, and he has family members who went down the gang culture path and did, you know, 20, 30, 40 years in in prison. So he does have that part too. Right. So I think people just really connected with him and he's very honest and uh, easy to talk to and just he brought so many great things and after that interview he's not a social media person at all he doesn't do any of it just phone and he called me the day after it 
it uh the episode went up and he's like <laughs> he's like did something happen did you do something like because he didn't really know when it was going to go up he doesn't even know how that works i'm like yeah yogi i put the episode up yesterday or this morning he's like man i'm getting calls from people i went to elementary school with like i don't even what's go- how does this work like I'm <laughs> he was blown away from all over the country people that have moved on have new lives he's like they were like yogi that was incredible. And they started remembering, yeah, I remember him. And you played strikeout with so-and-so when you guys were 12. And that one game over the, I was at that game and all this stuff. So he was just blown away on all the feedback he was getting. So I, th- I think that for as far as my neighborhood, and then obviously Rick JV, because that was so special to me. Wow. You know, those two, as far as like my neighborhood and stuff like that. But just so many other people like, You've done 50. Yeah. You know, so there's, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of, yeah. of inspiring moments in all of them. And uh, so I was listening to, uh, and I hope I pronounced his name right, but MZ Kumudu Kadumu. Yeah, thank you. Moyenda. Yeah. And so he was one of your earlier mentors as well, right? Yeah. And so that was a very full circle interview of where yeah. you had him on the show. And so yeah. I wanted to ask you what that was like for you doing, and, and same with, uh, is it JV, JC? Rick JV. Rick JV. Yeah, my first with, coach. Yeah, like that, just that experience of closing a loop of like now not only are you not, not that you're not still learning from them maybe, mm-hmm. but you're in a different level. You're more at like a peer yeah. place because you're mentoring people. And so right. you, you're in a new vantage point. What was that like for you? So what's so interesting about those two that you brought those two up is like, like they're like on sort of like completely opposite worlds. So I, I don't meet Elder Kadumu until like my early 20s. So I'm in a whole nother world now, right? So I'm like, I was working at like a, a, a bookstore, predominantly uh, African-American and African books in San Diego called Pyramid Books. And it was like a cultural hub for like just all kind of lectures and all kinds of incredible, incredible stuff. And that's where I just dove into like, you know, uh, black history, like, just super intensely read every single book I could possibly read, watched documentaries, went to lectures. So he was kind of part of that bookstore just as a coming in as a shopper. And he kind of took me under his wing because he was also into health. Right. And so he was showing me all this different stuff. He was the first one that like took me to a health food store. Yeah. And then what's interesting is we were talking offline about Essawan books and the co-owner that I interviewed He's the one, uh, Kadumu's the one who took me to LA to that bookstore for the first time. And for the audience, can you just uh, explain why this bookstore is so impressive? Not Pyramid, although I'm not saying that's yeah. not impressive, but this, uh, what is it, Essen? S-O-N. 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 Books is in Lamert Park. So for those that don't know, Lamert Park is like a cultural center in, in Los Angeles, uh, South Central Los Angeles. There's like incredible stores, vendors, they do music, African drumming, all kinds of stuff there. And Essawan Books wasn't there at the, f- the first time I went, but that's where it's located now. And it's like a beacon in the community. Like it's one of the like most prestigious, longest lasting African-American bookstores in the country. Uh, and um, uh, the co-owner I interviewed, um, you know, a while ago, uh, you know, Kadum was the one who brought me to this bookstore and, you know, the bookstore is just like 
phenomenal. It's like it's the same as like the, the bookstore I worked at. It's where everybody congregates. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a barber shop, but like a bookstore. Yeah. So everybody and he's had tons of people. Harry Belafonte, Danny Glover, Barack Obama, Denzel Washington. Uh, all these people have come and done book signings there. Just like incredible people. Right. So it's like it's like a very important, like cultural center. And so he took me there years ago. I was just like blown away. Couldn't believe like this existed. Right. And so over the years, he's just kind of like introduced me to things. He ran a rites of passage program in San Diego for young black boys, which was phenomenal. And so I got to watch him do that. He was part of um, he was kind of the elder in the uh, the drumming and dancing community with Tesacha San, which was a, a African drum and dance company in San Diego. So he was part of all that. And I got to meet all his peers who were also mentors. So he's just he was just like a great quality person with a great story. He was in the military. Uh, and so he that's how he came to San Diego was through that. So, yeah, just and I'm still friends with him today. You know, and it sounds like there's a spirit, like kind of a spiritual thread through that, too. I guess I'm getting that from the rites of passage and maybe listening to the interview. It sounds like he opens it up with like an invocation. Is yeah. That true? Yeah. He does a um, libation ceremony. Yeah. I didn't know he was going to do that at all. Really cool. Yeah. That was really cool. Yeah. 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 So he's led um, led libations when there's different ceremonies going on. And as an elder, you're kind of required to do that. Like yeah 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 so he's just been great just from like a cultural perspective and seeing like like you know my early people like it wasn't really cultural based right they weren't really into that kind of lifestyle it's like sports and athletics was sports more and that. athletics but also like giving you good life skills as yeah. well But then, you know, these people are kind of adding the cultural aspect to it, understanding your history, where you come from, the importance of books and literature and inventors, you know, the things that were all left out in school when I was growing up. You know, you didn't have any idea about all these amazing people all over the world, you know, from like an African descent who have contributed all these incredible things to the world. So that's what these people filled in for me. Right. But for me, it's like it's great to have both of them. It just like, you know, adds to it and just makes it even more you know, important going forward. And that's the thing, right, is having powerful and valuable mentors who take you under your wing, under their wing. Uh, we get exposed to things that we just would not have come across otherwise. And that's what, what I'm picking up from your story. Mm-hmm. And so you, you mentioned rites of passage and also the, you know, this idea of men's work. I know that you um, have talked a lot about Mankind Project on the podcast. And just in general, I'm curious what, what you think about this, you know, this idea of the rites of passage for young boys, especially. But I mean, I would say that, that young women need it, too. And non-binary folk, anyone need, like humans need these milestone mm-hmm. markers. And um, you've told me in the past that you do sort of hikes with some younger, uh, younger boys, I think you do Mm -hmm. some wilderness hikes or something like Mm -hmm. that. So maybe you could talk a little bit about just, you know, your takeaways on rites of passage as, as it pertains to today's youth. Yeah. Well, I interviewed, uh, Frederick Marx, who's a a Buddhist guy and a filmmaker. He was one of the co-directors for the incredible documentary hoop dreams. Uh, one of the best documentaries you can ever watch sports documentary, but it's a little bit more than that. Uh, and I met him at a retreat 
and we kind of stayed in touch. And then he came on my podcast and he does so much work in the rites of passage. He wrote a book on it. He's heavily involved in it. So hearing from him about it, it was really great. And he just talks about how it's like almost like a lost art form in our culture and how important it is to bring that back. He thinks it's probably the most important thing for the younger generation is to have that. And if they don't have that, then how are they going to like get out their different things and, and, and frustrations? It's going to come out in a dysfunctional way. There's just no way around it. So to be able to harness that in a, in a, like a, a certain context is so important. And I try to do that with like hikes and outdoor adventures with kids, you know, or through martial arts or, or, or training, whatever kind of training you can do, mm-hmm. because you have to create the container. I think if you create the proper container, you can almost like do miracles. Could you, would you be willing to share a little bit about like how one practically does that? I taught a little bit after school for a couple of years and I experienced the need of the container. And I think being a podcast host, you're creating a container. Uh, I think that anyone in any position of leadership or education has to, is being a facilitator. So maybe you could share a little bit about just like what goes into creating a container like that. How, how do you approach it? So I think the most important thing is to get them out of their current element and away from uh, social media, uh, media in general, and all the distractions. So to me, that'd be like the first step. So if I'm going to take like five or six, six kids, right, I'm going to go take them to the mountains. So just in that process right there, I've already eliminated so many distractions, mm-hmm. right? And so now it's so much easier to just have a basic conversation and a connection with them. So now just say the mountain now is the new container, right? And just that alone already has changed. Like you're halfway there already, just in that physical change of the container. So now I can almost like, like I was saying before with the martial arts, now I can like meet them here and we can rise up together on this journey, whatever we're going to do in the mountains. Right. And at each level, say we're trying to hike, you know, 10, 15 mile hike. Right. On the way there, we can stop and kind of just talk about anything, but the conversation is going to be so much different because we've eliminated all of these other distractions. Right. And they're relying on me to get them there safe, right? So there's some trust there. So I feel like with that and then getting to the top and then uh, them wanting to quit, them showing, you know, how to, how to persevere, how to have endurance. And then what's also great is if you change certain things, say, say you have the same container, but you take me out of the equation and put one of the parents of the kids there. Now everything's changing because he's going to behave differently because his parent is there. Yeah. Right. So things that he would complain about or disagree or be frustrated with, he's not going to do that if I'm there Mm -hmm. because my reaction to him is going to be very different. And he doesn't want to appear to be a certain way with the other kids. So all of that comes into play for the container. And when all those things come together, they can achieve so many more things. But (laughs) here's the constant problem. 
I can't keep them in that container. <laughs> so I have to implement enough things that when they go back, it kind of like, uh, it's almost like battery life, right? Right, right? right? And that's what I love about, you know, the Zen thing and the Zendo. They have this phrase that, you know, whenever you're back in the marketplace or in the world, they always say back to the Zendo. Mm. Basically, you need to go recharge again, right. right? So you're out here because, you know, say you're in the middle of Harlem, right? That's a lot of stimulation, man. And no matter how, you know, spiritual you claim to be, you got to deal with reality things, right? And that just can be draining. I don't care how much you sit, yeah. right? So it's nice to be like, okay, back to the Zendo, go recharge. And you come back and it's like, okay, I got this. So with them, you got to implement enough to stimulate them to be able to want to come back, you know, because like I said, they're not your kids. Yeah, they're going to go back to the patterning of their, go, yeah, of their own back. family system right. and life and everything. Right, right. But also, I think this all still gets back to my neighborhood and my community is that these coaches implemented things that lasted still to today. So even though I had to go back and go through trials and tribulations, I still can remember like the things Rick JV told me. What's like one thing just went like when you well, said that? What I would was... say it was like he told me mostly like basketball things. Right. Because I'm a point guard. Right. I'm a true point guard. Right. I mean, I can, I, I can explain the difference, but that could take a while. But I'm, I'm what you call a true point guard, not like a hybrid or a combo. Right. So he would always he would always say one thing like if you're true to the game, the game will be true to you. Like he would always say that. Right. So you got to what you give to it. That's how it's going to come back to you, right? So that could be applied. That's, that's everywhere, right? And just little things of like, you got to know where everybody is. You got to make everybody better, right? You got to know when to push the tempo. You got to know when to slow it down, right? So that all can be applied. You can't just always rush into everything, right? Sometimes you got to go, you got to wait and wait and wait for the right opportunity, and then sometimes you got to go super quick, right? And so all of those things I was doing in basketball, right? Like you got to, you got to, like, um, I was small for a basketball player. So defense was like my specialty, mm -hmm. right? So you got to be like the defensive specialist. You got to be able to stop the best person on the other team, right? So like you would really, really, really push defense. Find their weakness and exploit that. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So these are all just like good life strategies. Very martial too. Like both yeah, things you yeah, said yeah. reminds me of my, my Sifu, my Kung Fu teacher in Mexico where I lived for eight years. He said a couple of things. One is you have to act according to reality, mm -hmm. which reminds me of the be true to the game and the game will be true to you, which yeah. is um, you, can't, you can't just go off of what you want. You have to actually go off of what is being presented to you in that moment. You know, so if you're if if you're the defense person and you're going up against someone much bigger, you have to go based off of reality. What are yes. what are their weaknesses? Yeah. What are their openings? And then the other yeah, thing right. about parent about parents or just that when you work with youth, you have a short amount of time. You're not going to be influencing them twenty four seven. Right. They're going to be going back to their friends, their siblings, and and their family, and uh, it can undo a lot of the you know maybe positive influence that you have on them. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is why Sangha is so important. And so I know you've been part of um, several groups and several things, but one of the things I'm really interested in is your work with Zen and meditation mm -hmm. 
maybe you could talk a little bit about that, especially because in one sense, it seems very different than athletics, even though I think that moving meditation is just as Mm -hmm. important and valuable as sitting meditation, but there is a very different energy field around it. So how how did you get into meditation first? And maybe we can kind of talk more about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you said because they are, they are very different. But I think at the core of them, like a lot of them can also be like applied in the same way. Just depends on how you approach it. So I discovered it through uh, Stan Kohler, who also interviewed on my podcast. Uh, <laughs> you talk about a journey, man. Like this guy, man, this this is one of the most amazing people. Like I could say he's he's one of the most amazing people in the world. Like what he's doing is is just phenomenal. So he's in Harlem, and he was uh, under uh, Junpo Dennis Kelly, who ran the Hollow Bones Zen Order. So I went to a retreat. Stan brought his crew of kids in and brought us in. It was a seven-day silent retreat. And then I went to Harlem to his house afterwards. And it just kind of started a relationship, which I still have to, to, to today. But what's great about him is he's like a, he's almost like, 80 years old, like white guy in the middle of Spanish Harlem, working with all these black and brown kids, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, African-Americans, all right there in Spanish Harlem. And his thing is he uses the martial arts and the meditation and like puts them together. Right. So he's like meditation will get your mind right. The martial arts, martial arts will get your, your hands right. Mm -hmm. So he's like, I just watched how he how he does it with the kids. And it's just kind of phenomenal. And his whole thing is like, it's got to be practical. Like he's not trying to be like so spiritual and like wear robes and, you know, and all that. He's like looking at the teachings of the Buddha and like, how can I apply them today in real life? Right. So like if you're getting harassed by the police every time you come home from school because you live in the projects and you're guilty by association, like. How are you going to deal with that? Mm-hmm. Like, check this out. Try this and, and apply it and see if it works. Mm-hmm. So stop and frisk was a huge thing in, in New York City. Right. So he developed something that was like, here's how you're going to deal with that. Right. And the kids loved it because they felt like they had like a superpower. What was it? It was, it was like a um, it was, it's like a long process. But one of the things he would do is that. The second you get pulled over or dealt with, you kind of drop immediately. Energetic. Yeah, you just, you, your whole thing, you kind of drop into what they would call like a meditative state. Just that's the first thing you do. You don't go reaction and like start cussing and yelling and, and arguing with the police officer. And, you know, even if you didn't do anything, you just first you drop. And then he has a thing where he says, you only answer to questions. You never answer something that's not a question. Like, we saw you coming out of that liquor store uh, that supposedly was robbed earlier. That's silence because that's not a question. Did you rob that liquor store earlier today? No. So that just changes everything because a lot of times you respond to things that are, it's like a setup. Mm-hmm. Right. It's an accusation, but not a question. Not a question. So and then you go on defensive or something. Right. right. Yeah. So if you didn't ask me a question, I'm not answering. You're just making statements. Mm-hmm. And, and those can go on and on and on. But remember, you dropped first. Right. So that's helping you. 
So they would start to apply these things, come home, be like, yo, Stan, it worked. <laughs> yeah. So they and then, you know, of course, they want to tell everybody and tell their friends like, you know, and it, obviously it's not perfect. Some of them are 15, 16, 17 year olds. Right. So it's not like it works perfectly all the time and they still might get in trouble and, and, and whatnot. But it's a process that is just it's like great to see. You know what I mean? But, I, you know, I don't want to go into too much, but he he has a whole process of just different things on how to deal with different things. So I just really appreciated the, the like pragmatic approach to his spirituality and what he does with it. Was that your very first exposure to meditation? Was uh, no, I had been reading and studying, you know, for years and like that. logging hours doing it. Uh, no, that was the first time I did like a silent sitting retreat. I hadn't done that before, but I was very familiar with spiritual practices, authors and, you know, sages and Eastern thought and philosophy for, for many years before that, though, for sure. So I felt like it was interesting. I felt like it was leading to that, you know, because I, I also had uh, another mentor, a jazz mentor and a, like an Eastern philosophy mentor who took me under their wings and just basically I like kind of like almost got like a, like a PhD in, 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 in like just like old school philosophy, like going, just basically going over their house, like every day, listening to Coltrane and like reading like Gurdjieff, like for hours. A lot, like you reading the book itself, listening yeah, we, to music and they're yeah. doing their own thing. Well, no, no. Like he would sit me down and play the music and we talk and, and, and uh, dissect it okay. like on a whole nother level like a whole nother level. Like, remember, there's no words in this song. So he's breaking everything down in the music. And then we'll shift over and he'll read from like Eastern and Western philosophers. Right. And then I'll take the book or I'll write the book down. I'll go get it, finish it on my own. Um, but he'll talk about passages in the book. You know, I'll just be there for all day long. Wow. Just all day long. So it sounds like you got exposure to, or you got access, I'll say to hubs throughout your life to these cultural, spiritual, um, so, like societal, communal clubs mm -hmm. almost where you were nurtured, where you could go for guidance and learning. And it, it's like, it sounds like it happened multiple times, like whether it was the bookstore or whether it was his house or whether it was the rec center, there was these facilities that were containers for you to grow. Yeah. And I, it's like, I don't, I don't know why, but yeah, a lot, even to this day, like, I don't know. I just, I see people and I'll talk and if I'm very interested, I'll just continue to ask them questions and see how it goes. And if they're like, get the hell away from me, I don't got time for you. Then I just keep moving. So you've always been curious because I was going to ask you when, when was the first time you remember being interested in other people's stories? Because this sort of impetus to interview people and to be interested in people with life stories, not everyone a has that, as we know, we were talking off air a little bit about how just some people aren't interested in that as much. So yeah. When did that start? Has that always been there? Um, maybe I remember going to sixth grade camp and the camp uh, counselors telling us stories and being just like fascinated and engulfed in the way that they told the story. They were scary stories, 
but they were still stories that, that weaved in all of these different characters and stuff. And remember just like sitting there, like soaking that all in, you know, uh, I don't know about before that, but I know later on, just, I really like, like, I'm really interested in like, like the old wino sitting on the porch, like that has like, like, everybody's forgotten about him because he's not really in our, in our Western world. He's not really valid. He's not really contributing anything. Cause he's, just, he's not like trying to build a million dollar no, business and he, like be a P, no. you know, PR tour. And, and he is a drunk. Like he, <laughs> like he's, when, he is a drunk and he probably annoys the hell out of a lot of people. But I feel like if I can get one little gem out of him, mm-hmm then it's worth spending time with him and listening to him. And it's not always a story. Sometimes it's just a phrase because they have them, you know, they have them like way back in there. And so I've always been really interested in that. So you, you recognize that human humans and humanity in itself is, has value in a, in a lived experience that there's something in every human's life probably that could be of service to more people and that it's interesting at the very, at the very least, there's something interesting that you can learn about humans and life. Oh man. Yeah, absolutely. But you do have to go through some maybe unhealthy conversations and dialogues along the way. Mm -hmm. So, but I think I've just been okay with being able to do that. Like, it's like, you gotta, you gotta, there has to be some give to it, right? And in the process, like, I feel like it's worth it to get to the gym, even if I gotta go listen to a whole bunch of nonsense to get to it. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's kind of worth it. You know what I mean? Well, it's interesting too, because before um, recorded history, like everything was passed down orally, right? From mm-hmm. like speaker to, yeah. or from teacher to student. Yeah. And this whole podcasting world is so based around dialogue and conversation and even your radio show dialogues mm-hmm. of jazz. Um, it, it's a, you know, in talking about philosophy, dialogue is a potent tool for yeah. learning in general. And there's so much science and, and awesome studies, especially regarding youth and students about how a, dia- a dialogical or dialogical mm-hmm. approach to learning. So rather than telling a student an answer, asking them a question that makes their own synapses fire and do the work of getting to that conclusion themselves is more potent than telling someone the solution. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so it's through conversation that we can not only get info, but we can learn wisdom and knowledge and actually pass it. And it seems like a lot of your work is sort of tracing that thread back and trying to preserve these gems, mm-hmm. you know, from, mm-hmm. from elders and from, from bygone years, <laughs> uh, but also make it accessible. Yeah, because I think our culture just doesn't value elders enough. Mm-hmm. It's like it's not ingrained in like the Western way. No. And so through my podcast, you know, like I have like three major components of why I even have a podcast, you know, and like one of them is documenting the elders, like not just the ones in my community, but all over the world. Right. So I've been able to meet elders from other places that I, that I didn't know. They didn't influence me at all, but their stories are just as incredible. 
two is having like a jazz theme throughout my podcast. It's not a, I always tell jazz musicians, it's not a jazz podcast, but I love interviewing jazz musicians because what they stand for and what they represent and the fact that most of the time there's no words, I just think is one of the most valuable things in the world. And I also think the music can actually change the consciousness of the younger generation if applied right especially when you talk about like John Coltrane and, and stuff like that. So I always want jazz to be a big part of my podcast. So I just love interviewing jazz musicians. Like they're just, they're just, they're just really interesting folks because they're in a genre playing like the highest art form of music and nobody knows who they are right. and they're not on billboard top 10. Who, who, are, who are a couple that you could shout out on, on the air? So I interviewed Charles McPherson. He's a, he's a, bebop legend he's 83 or 84 years old now he knew charlie parker as a kid met charlie parker as a kid and i mean so just that alone is like just incredible and i actually kind of know him because i know his son his son chuck mcpherson was my jazz mentor early on like he he like took me under his wings uh and just like walked me through jazz history and the importance of it. But his methods were very unorthodox and kind of harsh. Mm. So if I hadn't have already had these great teachers who, who exposed me to what like banter is like, mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean that I'm bullying you or being mean, yeah. it's just a different way of showing like love and appreciation. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know that, it can be very confusing. Sure. So his methods were super, super harsh. <laughs> but I was like, I'm cool, I don't care. I'm cool with that. And so he just took me under his wing and it was incredible. And having him on the podcast, like people were calling me. It was like, yo, Chuck is incredible because he's so honest. He has no filter whatsoever. They say in my, in my spiritual tradition that I grew up in that if you only get the, the nice feel good stuff, you're yeah. only getting 50% of yeah. the mercy. Yeah. <laughs> if you want the other 50% of the mercy, you have to be willing to have right. a little bit more uh, right. of like you're saying the banter yeah. and the hard knocks and yeah. the harshness. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was great. You know, so, you know, those two. And then the, the third thing about my podcast is basically just an ode to my neighborhood. That's really like probably at the top of why I have a podcast mm -hmm. is honoring my community that I came from, which has been so great for me. I still talk to so many people I grew up with all the time. You know, I still have friends from when I was, you know, five, six, seven years old, walk to school every day together, first grade, second, third, whatever grade you're old enough to walk to school. But yeah, like they're still my friends. Their moms are still my friends. Their family members are still my friends. So just honoring my neighborhood is kind of like one of the main things. Of, of that is so cool. That's such a unique reason too. And it sounds like you've, you actually kind of rung the bell a little bit. And, and a lot of those members of the community have gathered around your show, mm -hmm. you know, based on um, who was it you said blew up. The, the one that blew up. Yogi. Yogi. Where it's like, yeah, people, people of that time and of that place are tuning in and, yeah. and catching it. And so yeah. that's really... That's really amazing that to start a platform with that kind of mission and vision at the core and have it work out. And I wanted to ask you, like, what would you, what would you say, what, what advice or words of wisdom would you give to someone who wanted to start a podcast or a platform like this? Uh, that's interesting. Uh, I would say 
make sure you're true to yourself. Like you got to find what it is that moves you and what you are very passionate about. Right. And find, you know, what it is that like you're very like comfortable with sharing because at the end of the day, like you have to really love what you're going to do and you got to be ready for the ups and downs and you got to find your voice that you're going to bring to the community and to the world. Right. And so, I mean, there's many podcasts on many different subjects. Right. And so I would say for somebody that wants to start a podcast is one, like listen to a lot of podcasts and kind of like find your lane within that. And you got to just be very, very passionate about what you do, because like I was saying earlier, uh, dealing with the kids is passion is infectious. Right. And so I would just start with just that basic thing right there. And then we can get into all the logistical things and stuff, you know, but it's like that one thing is is uh, it's hard to come by. It's interesting because a lot of the most profound. I, I think a lot about it, like strategy and tactics, you know, like you can get lost in a million and one tactical salute, you know, strategies or, or sorry, tactical solutions for re- achieving a goal. But if this, if the overall strategy and even higher than the strategies, like the purpose, if, if those aren't locked in, then it, you can do a lot and not get anywhere. And so having these, these high level strategic things like passion is infectious. So therefore follow your passion and, and that will get you where you're going. Mm-hmm. Sounds so simple. And they sound kind of like, you know, not, not some great grand secret, but oftentimes that's how it is, is almost like the most profound things are hiding in plain sight. And you can, you can see that and not understand it or realize it until you try and do it. And then when you try and do a podcast, not following your passion or not following your authentic voice, you, you experience it. And then you can feel the shift when you just fully give in to like, no, this, I'm going to, I'm going to be dedicated to my heart on this and to feel the alignment that comes with that mm-hmm. is so different. And it's to the point where it's like, well, it doesn't even matter. I found success already because after this, you know, I, I remember I had a conversation with one of my mentors. I'll just share this story briefly. Mm-hmm. So when I was maybe six or seven, I saw my first magician on TV and he had this incredible mask act and his name is Jeff McBride. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's one of the world's greatest illusionists and magicians yeah, and yeah. teachers of magic. And he's traveled all over the world to all these different countries and built these amazing cultural magic shows, different themes. And I just remember seeing it and being blown away. And it, it, I ended up interviewing him on the podcast and learning from him for now a couple years. And the, 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 again, closing the loop, seeing him perform magic on my podcast, like it just brought me to tears because it was so moving and that happened because I followed my passion, you know? And so it's so simple, but it's such a powerful compass for people. If you can, and that's why my program and my motto is amplify what you love. Cause if you do focus on what and who you love and you just, you pour energy into it, 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 it reflects into your life, those around you, everyone else feels it. And it's infectious as you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to add on to that is what are you going to be bringing to the table that you think people will be interested in? 
right? So you, like, what are you saying at the end of the day? Like, what is your podcast going to be talking about? Like, what are some of the gems that are going to be weaved in there? Right. So like, like for me, you know, you know, documenting the elders, right? I think that's a very, very important thing, right? Uh, documenting jazz musicians, even though it's a small, you know, niche, like there's still uh, people out there who really want to hear what these jazz musicians have to say, you know, and in my neighborhood, you know, a lot of people have a similar story about the neighborhood, you know, especially when it was like went from paradise to drug culture and saw the fall of it. You know, that's that's a lot of, you know, inner city communities around the country. So showing people like I feel like showing, like I said earlier, showing people what it was like before that and, 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 and like honing into that mentality, what it was like and not only being connected with this other negative part of it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to carry that part with you. You can see the whole picture. Right. And don't forget, you weren't always doing this. I tell all my friends all the time who got caught up in things. Right. Like. Hey, no, everybody knows you with that new nickname and and you've been to prison back and forth. But let's not forget what you was doing before that, because I I know. So a long way from the block is is also sometimes you end up in not maybe I won't say a better place, but it it may be even rougher than where you started. It goes both ways. Sometimes you end up in in Amsterdam and other times you end up in a penitentiary somewhere. Right. And it's like every, every, everyone's journey is different. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and a lot of people became, you know, so-called enlightened in prison. Right. So, you know. Had nothing else to do except yeah, work on just, themselves. You know, yeah, it just depends. I mean, I don't think that's the ideal way to do it, obviously. And I don't think they would think that either. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. All the journeys are, are just so interesting. I just had so, I just had so many incredible people. My Capoeira teacher, Capoeira master is like one of the most, one of the greatest martial artists in the world. He's in the martial arts hall of fame. Uh, Master Preto Value um, just like took me under his wings too. I didn't know anything about this art at all. And he just took me from day one, you know, all the way up. And like, you talk about like life lessons, man. Like there's so many life lessons in, in that art form and just his own experience that he passed on. I had another guy named uh, Donald who took me and my family under his wing and just like was one of the most incredible kind of father figures to us. And uh, it still is a big influence on my daughter. Like, and he's from the South. He would give me these gems that his father gave him. He told, he told me one thing that I carry with me, like all the time. One of the greatest things I've ever heard is he said, and I think he got this from his father. He said, let each man hang himself. Meaning like, if you're going to end up being a bad person, I'm not going to assume that. And I'm not going to, you know, deal with you like that. I'm going to deal with you like everything's good. And if you show me something else, then you just hung yourself. I don't need to hang you based on your tattoos, your skin tone, your religious belief, your whatever hat you're wearing that has some political slogan on it. That's all just stuff, right? Until you do something, this, we don't have a problem. It's all good. Let each man hang himself. You don't have to do it. 
And then when they do it, it's like, oh, okay. And I love that. I think it's just a great, great thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, it gives you an opportunity phrase. to see people for who they are rather than pre presumptions and projections and, and just whatever it's like. Cause you, you know, this is a simple, a simple, not exactly the same thing, but like not judging a book by its cover, mm -hmm. similar premise. And I've caught, I've been caught in this where I judged the crap out of someone because of what they were wearing. Right. And then they were like this really elevated spiritual practitioner. Yeah. And I just felt terrible when I, when yeah. I had a real conversation with them. It's like, yeah, yeah right. let, let each man hang themselves. Right. So, okay. I'm really curious <laughs> because you, you know, we're talking about all these martial arts masters and mm -hmm. we're talking about meditation and, and just like what it takes to become masterful. And this is something that I have been super interested in for a long time. I have been practicing meditation for a long time throughout my life. My father was the first person to teach me how to meditate when I was like 11 or 12. And um, I have always felt like this up and down thing with discipline, with habits, with, with any practice, whether it's like a chanting meditation or a silent meditation, or if it's a martial art training or even lifting weights or even playing sports. Mm -hmm or even brushing my teeth, you know, like anything that I'm signing up to do for the rest of my life every day mm -hmm. has a certain weight to it. And, it. and it can be challenging to carry that weight every day. And so I wanted to ask you your thoughts on habits, discipline, especially as that pertains to decades, you know, because sometimes I think, oh, I, I was medit I meditated for 200 days straight every day. And then I got COVID and I fell off. And I was working out during that time too. And it was like everything going well. And then I fell off. And so then I start to feel this imposter syndrome of like, oh, I'm not a meditator because I have meditated in two weeks, but I just spent 200 days doing it. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the last 10 years, I've spent a certain percentage of time doing spiritual practices and meditation. Mm -hmm. So how have you balanced like decades of discipline and habits and growth with your narrative of who you are and like, yeah, I don't even know if that makes sense. You kind of understand what I'm asking there. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think my answer might be, could be too simple. Like maybe let me know, but like, it really just comes down to, I like what I do. And it's, I don't think it's even, even more in depth than that. That that's, and if it turns out that that means that it's super disciplined and, you know, leads to all these things, then so be it. But it just comes down to, I really love doing the things that I do. And I don't really have goals set up for them either. It's almost, I'm just kind of like, uh, <laughs> I'm just kind of like an observer. I'm just kind of like walking around observing. That, that's kind of like all I'm really doing. And then I find things that I'm really passionate about and I just do them. Just, just do them for every day I wake up. If I still love to do it, then I'm going to do it. Whether it's one day or 10,000 days. How do you balance that with difficulty and challenge? Because oftentimes, at least I have a belief that strength, my strength won't come from comfort. It'll come from discomfort. And, and so I may love the result of like, let's, let's say, um, training so hard, right. Mm -hmm. Training really hard or jujitsu. It's like, it's mm -hmm. not comfortable to do it, 
It's, and no one wants to be slammed by another sweaty, huge person and like have the wind knocked out of them. You don't want it generally. I mean, yes, you can get into some like fight club kind of being into pain and all that. But I think for the most part, it's actually the benefit. It's the feeling after training people are after. It's the new abilities of being able to protect yourself and others. There's like a goal, but the actual process is uncomfortable and difficult. So how do you balance like, yeah, that loving what you're doing, but also not loving maybe all the process behind certain things, or it gets really uncomfortable to sit for 10 hours meditating. Yeah. So for me, all of the things you're talking about, the uncomfortable stuff to me, that's where all the juice is. Mm -hmm. So I don't look, maybe, maybe we're just using different words. So I don't really look at it as that uncomfortable. I look, I still look at it like I'm still having fun and enjoying myself, even though it may physically be uncomfortable. I know that's where the good stuff is. And I also find some of the most challenging, difficult, strenuous things a little bit humorous. So like I've been in a sitting meditation where it's so bad and then I just I just start laughing because all of this is just kind of ridiculous. And all of the things I'm formulating and all this stuff is just very interesting. I just find it all very interesting. So I don't really dive too far into like how hard and struggle it is. If it was something that I'm not invested in, that I'm not passionate about, that's where it's very difficult and a huge struggle. And I try to stay away from those things as much as possible. Like, definitely. So you follow, you follow what genuinely brings you joy. Absolutely. 100%. And I do find joy in certain martial arts that could be very dangerous and cause pain because of where it where it puts your mind state in, right? So I do African stick fighting, right? And early on, it was very, very difficult, very difficult because it's, it's intense, the sticks are unforgiving. And the way my teacher taught it was like, he did not care. You should just quit if you can't handle it. But what it does, it's so fast, right? that it puts your mind in a whole different state that you're not thinking about blocking anymore. Now you're just responding to everything. And when, when you're done, like when you walk out into the world, it's just like basic. It's yeah. so basic. Like what I just avoided in that hour and a half, like what are you going to bring? Right. This guy cutting me off this is, is nothing. This right? is like, <laughs> it's absolutely nothing. None of this stuff. Right? And you weren't thinking about any of your life's problems nothing. during that. I'm, you can't. <laughs> you can't. Unless, like you were saying, unless you enjoy pain, unless you enjoy like having your, you can't bend your fingers because you've been hit so many times or you can't see out of, I don't, that, who, I don't like that. So what are you going to do? Here's how you block it. I'm going to show you how to block it. Now you got to figure it out but the pressure is going to be so intense that you are going to figure it out. If you're ready to take that journey, yeah. most people just quit. Yeah. Cause it hurts. So will, it's the willpower that pushes us beyond our growth edge is, is the most amazing thing, right? Because it shows us there's this other reality beyond the self-imposed limitation that we put. There's like a whole other 
realm that we can reach. But so yeah, oftentimes yeah. It's, it, it takes a little bit of Yeah, uh, you got to go through the fire. Right. Oh, you got to go through the fire. But like I said, I'm enjoying myself on the way through the fire. What do you, That's the difference. Do you say, any, is there any sort of like uh, motto that you're saying that kind of locks that sensation in for you of enjoying yourself through the fire? Um, I don't know if it's a motto, but it, what it, what I do is like, I'm like, I'm going to be engulfed in this 100%. Oh, I did um, actually named one of my podcast interviews uh, a phrase I really like, exhaust the moment, mm. right? So if you exhaust 100% of this moment, right? You're, you give everything right in that process. I feel like you are constantly also rejuvenating yourself for the next one. So just exhaust all of it right there. Like every single thing. So when you're doing these sticks, I'm 100% locked into every single thing that we're doing right now. And that mind state is makes it enjoyable for me, even though it's a struggle and painful. Right. So it's, it's like, um, I don't know, it could be a weird thing, but I, that's why I really love the concept of martial arts is because the mind state it puts you in and how you have to do things. Right. Especially if it's like a lot of improv stuff, it's easy if I, if it's structured, but if I'm now going to be moving in a certain way that you're not used to, you still got to figure it out in the moment. And that's the part I really like is figuring it out in the moment when it, when stuff is coming at you so fast and so hard. It's pure presence. I mean, it's, it's about as present as you can get because yeah. otherwise you're on, you're not on the ground or your knuckles are swollen yeah, or whatever, yeah. you know, but that's the, that's the beauty of it all. That's the part I really like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? And I'm just, I've, I've all, all I've done was transferred this same stuff I used to do in basketball you know, at a, at an early age. Right. And just kind of moved it in whatever different things. Cause the, the energy, the passion, the intensity, the will, the love for it, those are all the same. Yeah. I just think these have a higher component to it because they have a spiritual aspect to it. And I think they have a, a higher level than just what the sports can offer. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think in a lot of communities, you're told, sports are your only activities that you can be involved in. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I said one time in a, I think in an interview that I felt my neighborhood when it was paradise changed helicopters, like flew over my community just metaphorically and dropped basketballs and footballs and drugs. Oh, wow. And they just dropped and just spread out. And they said, just pick everybody, pick one. Do sports, do drugs. Do one of these through one of these things because we're not giving you any other options, right? Back to the Karis one quote: "You're confined to your block. The results are going to be obvious." So, and then I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa!" Now I'm starting to meet all these other people, like like all this other stuff, and I'm like, "No, sports isn't the only thing. Mm -hmm. There's all these other incredible." Incredible things that you can do that a lot of these people actually have. They just don't know it. Right. So, you know, it's, it's kind of unfortunate that those are the only options. But like I said, I think these things 
Plus, these things you can do for your entire life. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You, you got to, you know what, a great football player, the average football life is three to four years. It, I was actually a, a academic advisor or like a learning strategist for student athletes at the university. And it, it is pretty intense that almost like uh, it's like a it's a it's a system that churns out these athletes, uses them uses their bodies and kind of spits them out once they're done. Mm-hmm. And they, if they didn't kind of continue investing in their education and their other professional right. uh, goals or, or invest their money well, they end up in almost like worse positions sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so right. I can, that image of the, of the balls dropping from the helicopters, <laughs> it's, it's really, yeah. you know, it puts it into perspective. And, you know, I, I just am grateful that your, your, you're spending your time and life force being around kids right now and, and sharing what you've learned. Cause you're, you're basically this massive funnel. That's just got grabbed all this wisdom, all these gems and you're passing it on. And in fact, you interviewed some, what, what graders were they? Oh, those were what? First, second, third, graders? first, second, and third graders. <laughs> I, I was listening to it this morning yeah, and I was, yeah. I was super surprised, uh, just how engrossed they were. Yeah. in answering your questions yeah. and you 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 hosted it so well and it was just kind of like a sweet picture into uh what it might be like to be one of your students yeah that was a lot of fun yeah and the first kid that went set the set the tone for the rest because he role modeled they were so nervous he was he was so yeah. chill about it though yeah. and and what i think's interesting is i i've I've been teaching kids on and off for, yeah. for many years. And one of the things I always found was that a microphone does amazing things for kids. Oh, man. Like to amplify a kid's voice, maybe because kids don't get listened to that much. Maybe because right. they don't, it's hard for them to speak mm-hmm. uh, and be heard or something. Right. But something about the, the, the microphone uh, really affects and impacts them. Yeah, 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 it does. And I, it just when I was setting up my equipment, it was like the greatest thing in the world. It was like, it was like, it was was like I opened a box and like glowing stuff came out of it from another universe. Yeah. Treasure chest. Yeah. 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 But the the kid thing there and the kid thing I do now is, you know, you got to do it, man. Like you got to stay connected to the younger generation. I got a a lot of that. I got from jazz musicians because the, the, a lot of the great jazz musicians, as they got older, they would always hung, uh, hire the young fire, yeah. right? So you got, and the, you know, they don't have the wisdom yet, but they have, they're like on fire, they, you know? So you got Art Blakey, the old jazz drummer, and then he hires all these new cats and then you get the best of both worlds, right? And then, you know, he can, he can kind of see what they're thinking and, and their ideas because they've got a 23-year-old idea is different than a 75-year-old. And it can be really fresh and valuable oh, and, yeah. and, and unlocked. So, so that's the other thing, too, is that it, it really is also reciprocal, right? And I, I experienced this when I first started teaching in elementary and, and middle school was how triggered I got and how confronting it was when I couldn't hold a container for them and they were they were acting out or having a meltdown or not paying attention or not doing what I said Mm -hmm. and it was literally like you know this idea of like we all have an inner child we have child parts of ourselves, and it was like all my child parts were outside running around not listening to me Mm -hmm. and and what I got from that, actually, I was really humbled. It was like, actually, yes, while I'm here to teach them, they're actually really teaching me a lot right now. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's like, it's, it's our, 
in, in Eastern tradition or in the Vedic tradition, there's this universal principle called guru. Mm -hmm. And nowadays everyone's like, oh, he's a marketing guru or he's a health right, guru. Right. And yeah. honestly, it bums me out that that word has been appropriated because guru is one of the most auspicious, beautiful uh, yeah. titles you could give someone. And it's not to be, uh, it's not, it's not a indicator of someone being fake. And so guru is actually non-localized principle. Guru is one guru is this like omnipresent energy of wisdom teaching, mm -hmm. teaching you right, right there to help you grow towards your highest goal. Yep. And so it's, it's really like guru disguising themselves as a child. Yeah. 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 Or a wino <laughs> or a wino yeah. or a wino. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, no, and this sure. goes back to your thing of let, let each man hang in themselves yeah. too. Right. Yeah. 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 But you know, I was thinking about your, your earlier thing that you asked me about the kids and why it's so important. And, and this one of the struggles, mm -hmm. I just wanted to just real quick, yeah. just backtrack is that the kids, so the kids and the way they behave now, especially with their parents is very frustrating to me. Like how they, how they talk to their parents and how they behave with their parents. So that's something that's really challenging for me that I've been trying to work with, right? Because like growing up with my mom, like, like she was like incredible, right? And I can't even imagine saying certain things to her or talking a certain way to her. And none of my friends did that either. They all had a, a serious reverence for their mom. Not 100% of the kids, and there were some exceptions, but for the most part, you never did that. You never crossed the line. You didn't cuss at your mom. You didn't disrespect your mom. You know, you didn't do any of that stuff, you know? So like, and, and moms, they take so much stuff internally from the way that their kids act and behave and they blame themselves for a lot of things. So I'm like, why would you want to intentionally add to that? You know what I mean? Like I had a great mom, which is you know, I talked about all of these different incredible people, like none of that is possible if she didn't set the original foundation for me to do any of that stuff. Right. So, you know, I got to be clear that I'm just talking outside the house, all of this incredible stuff, you know, but inside the house, like for a mom, like she, you know, like if you were to have a list, like what would make a great mom, like she would check every box, like no problems. And the complaints, zero. Because any, any of the complaints I would have, they're not even worth writing down. That's just you, like, you know, thinking of something, nitpicking. Mm -hmm. Why would you want to nitpick the person who did all of these incredible things? That just seems like a waste of time. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think of, like, you know, how things were and how she was for not just me, but all of my friends and how my friends' moms were to me as well. Mm -hmm. You walk in the house, man, everything changes. You just, everything, you become a saint. You're in a, do you're in a dojo. You yeah, know? Like absolutely, you, you yeah. step lightly. Your mom's the headmaster. Yeah. She's of, of all of it. Right. But she shows you all of the things that she's doing. Like, and you really start to, as you get older, you realize it more all of the incredible things that, you know, when you're young, of course you take it for granted. But so that's been a huge struggle with my mentoring with the younger generation is trying to get them to understand the concept of a mother and how you're supposed to behave. Not that you don't get mad at her, not that you want to run away like we all did at one time, 
Not that you hate her. Sometimes you think you hate her, you know, mumbling under your breath or talking to your friends or going back in your room and being pissed off. I'm not saying none of that doesn't exist. I'm just talking about the overt disrespect. That's the that's probably the biggest struggle I have with the younger generation. And is that a struggle because of the result it produces in their behavior? Or is it a struggle just for you to see? Both. Like, I'm glad you said the first part. Both of those. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, <laughs> what's interesting to me about it is like, I, I think there's, there could be so many reasons for it, right? Because like you can be born into a family with a super abusive mother, Absolutely. right? There's, yeah. there's plenty of cases or with a super not abusive mother, but just absent or yeah. whatever, right? So yeah. that is possible. Yeah. And, and there's so many reasons for that. And, with, and if, there, if the father figure isn't present there, then that's a huge issue. And it puts unnecessary weight on her or whatever. But when our, as children, our parents are God, more or less, yeah, you when know, we're little, when we're very little, they yeah, are absolutely. when, as we grow older, we start to individuate and realize yeah. they're humans, but yeah. still there are shelter and all this. And when that is for whatever reason, um, not in right relationship, when we're not in right relationship with that, it actually impacts our, it can impact our relationship to the universe, the cosmos, everyone else. It's like, that's in a, in a sense, our template mm -hmm. for how we experience reality. And it takes other teachers or other experiences to rewrite that model yeah. and give us hope. But I, I find that a lot of kids that don't have that some sort of positive role model connection can have a difficult time kind of connecting to the universal yeah. force. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's true. And I think that's why coaches and, you know, uh, mentors are so important to help balance the kid and to kind of show them a different way. But it's a big struggle because some of the things are very strange to me. And uh, I just got to like keep pushing and navigating through it. I also think about Siddhartha, you know that book? Mm -hmm. I think a lot about the spoilers, the, the end, <laughs> the end where, or near the end where it's like he's gone through Sangsara, he was a monk, he found a consort, he was a businessman, he did family life, all this stuff. And then finally he, he has just his son and he's trying to, I forget all the details, but he's basically trying to like shelter his son and, and, and prevent his son from suffering like he did and, and all this stuff. And his son runs away from him and he's in yeah. intense agony. And his teacher is like, you can't basically, he has to go, you've done your whole Sangsara journey right? and your son is going to go do his whole Sangsara journey. Yeah. Yeah. And so sit and meditate by the river yep. more or less. I'm, yeah. I'm super paraphrasing, mm -hmm. but, um, there is this crazy balance when working with anyone, but especially youth where it's like, we have to give all we can and really try to support them in, in what's going to help them to find their passion, find their voice, yep. find, you know, the tools that they need to thrive and also be detached because they're going to go do the thing that they need to do yeah. in, in their soul's journey. Right. And it's a really painful yeah. thing. And you're not their parents. So you can't go home with them, which changes everything. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. But it's still, I find, um, a lot of pleasure in it though. Still, even with all the frustrations. Yeah. It's still great. You know, cause the, the, I, I mentioned banter earlier. I had a kid from uh, his freshman year. He, he had a huge problem with banter 
just not part of his culture, not part of his meaning like any sort of kind of rougher, fun kind of vibe talking or being a little rougher. Well, would, like, would more like, like teasing and like joking about stuff. It's, it's like a way, like at least in the community I grew up in, it's a form of like appreciation and like love in some ways. Right. So I would like, you know, for example, like if he came in with like some like skinny jeans on, I'd be like, yo, man. Seriously? <laughs> What's going on, man? <laughs> and so it wasn't until like his senior year, though, and it would be all kinds, because the kids, they, like, they wear pajamas to school. And I'd be like, you have house shoes on in high school? That's what you, you decided to come to school today with house shoes on. And I always, there's a great, uh, I don't know if you remember the HBO show, The Wire. Yeah. One of the greatest shows ever. Uh, there's a line in there where one of the guys says, uh, look the part, be the part. Mm-hmm. Right. And I always would tell them, you know, you got to look the part, man, and then you'll be the part. That's so if you come to school in your pajamas, man, you didn't you that's you didn't told everybody how you feel about everything right now. Right. And you got slippers on. Yo, man, what is you doing? Right. How are you going to wear slippers to school? <laughs> so. <laughs> He didn't take it good until, but no, here's the thing. His senior year, he finally got it and it clicked. And there was another girl in the class uh, earlier, took her to her senior year as well. Because in class, I would give her a hard time and just say all kind of random stuff. It's a little zen. It is, it is. But it's it's hard for them because they didn't grow up in the kind of community I grew up in. They never hear that kind of stuff. They think that's like bad. So finally, same with her, her senior year, I would say something and she'd be like, oh, banter coach, right? And I'll be like, yeah, see, you finally get it. And then they started passing it back on to the younger grades, right? And I'm like, yeah, you know, there's a fine line though. You gotta understand how to do it yeah, yeah. It's I, I, I think I probably have room to grow in my banter skills. So I have to learn some from you, uh, I, and I probably would help with my students as well. But I, so I wanted to ask you as well, like may, maybe just like thinking back on your childhood, like what are some stories that stand out to you? So I have so many. Like so many, I feel like I could do a whole show on just my childhood stories. Your, your next podcast. Yeah. And even bring in some of the people that were there for <sighs> That'd it. That'd be awesome. Like, like a round table childhood story. Like we could do like favorite memory at Highland Park, you know, and I could, that would be cool. But uh, I have a story that is, I find interesting because I think it kind of sums up why I love my community so much. Right. And it's just like, it just tells of like <clears throat> what the times were like and what a real friend is like and what a community is like. And so I grew up in an apartment, 12 unit apartment across the street from Highland Park. And I lived upstairs and downstairs was my probably my best friend at the time, Craig Chantre. He had two older sisters and his mom lived there. And his mom was uh, Auntie Carol, like a neighborhood like hero, incredible uh, mothering figure for so many different people. But me and Craig, he's like a year or two older than me, but we hung out every single day, played all the time, sleepovers all the time, walked to school together. But we had this thing that we used to do where we would, uh, he'd either come get me upstairs or I'd come get him, or we'd meet in the middle uh, of the apartment. And we would walk about a block away to the Safeway 
That was the local grocery store. And we would go there <laughs> and we would do this game. Like we'd go there almost like every night or every other night. And we would go to the grocery store and we would be in one aisle, say I'm in aisle five and he's in aisle six right next to me. And we would race full speed to the end of the aisle and head slide, right? And so as you're head sliding, whoever comes out first wins the race, right? So you don't know, right? You, you go and as soon as you get to the end, you look and if I'm there first, I won. Or if he got there first, he won, right? So that would be the sole purpose of going to the grocery store. And you have to like figure out if you slide too late, you're not going to get enough. You're going to, he's already going to be sliding and win. If you slide too early, you might fall short of the end of the aisle and not win either. So you have to find the perfect balance of when to slide, right? And the incredible thing about this is not one time ever did a shopper, a store worker, a manager, anybody ever tell us to stop. They never were like, what are these kids doing? You're in my way, nothing. Never did we crash into a person with a shopping cart. Never did we like become a nuisance for anybody that was there shopping. They all were just like letting us do this incredible thing. In fact, the grown people and the workers like didn't even exist to us. It was our entire store. And it was the most, it was our lane. It was, and we would stand you know, we'd stand like, like track stars and we'd look at each other and we'd go like one, two, three, go. Full speed, Shh. slide, look, whoever won. Then we'd go back, go back, go back. And we would just do this, man, for like, I don't know, 30 minutes to an hour. Wow. Yeah. You know, then we maybe walk around, buy a soda, drink a soda, then go do some more slides. And then we'd just walk home, say bye and go home. And, and this kind of sums up like, the greatness of my community, like that we had this kind of incredible thing that we could just do all the time that would just take us in a different world away from our parents, away from any dramas or troubles going on in the world, in the news and anything. It was just me and Craig racing down the aisles and head sliding. And this is on hard surface. So now we go 30 years later, whatever, many, many years later to like a few years ago. I'm at a local grocery store in the same neighborhood, actually right in the same like block that has been rebuilt. So it's actually almost the exact same place as the grocery store would be, but it's a whole new community now. It's a big grocery store. And I'm in there one day just grabbing some stuff. And I stop in the middle of the aisle and I look around and it's wide. It's huge. It's a huge wide, angle, uh, wide uh, aisle. And I look at the ground like brand new slick surface and I touch the ground and everything. And I'm like, whoa, this is nice. Kids everywhere in the store. It's, a, it's still a community. There's a lot of kids in there and people shopping. And I'm just stopping. I look around and I'm like, why is nobody racing down these aisles? Kids, you're, you're wasting a perfect, smooth aisle surface. You're all on your phones and video games and tablets and not even paying attention to the most important part of why you're at this store right now. Nobody's doing this. 
And I was just shocked. That's amazing. Did you hear me laugh? No, 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 no. Not anymore, man. Now you probably get arrested for doing something like that. They probably think you're crazy as an adult. But I'm just like, kids, look at, look at this opportunity you're losing right now, right? So I just thought, man, that was one of the things that like summed up why I love my community so much, man. Hmm. Me and Craig doing that every other night. It sounds like a beautiful place and a beautiful time and, and the idea that the adults wouldn't uh, stop or right. outlaw the fun, right. that it was like approved that you could just explore and and invent games and play with your friends there and it was yeah. it was embraced and then how that led to i mean there's some competition in that game you know how that led to sports and who knows the yeah. benefit of play play is how we learn society right. and culture yeah. and community so yeah it's a beautiful story man so as we wrap up i'm so curious what's what's next for a long way for the from the block what's next for the podcast and dialogues and yeah what's what's on the horizon well, for you i think one thing i'm really trying to do is go more international with my podcast right so i'm going to do some traveling this summer and I did make some connections in London. I interviewed a fashion designer named Curvin Mark, and I've stayed in contact with him. He has roots in like the islands and migrated to, to London and that whole connection. And so I'm gonna see him and maybe have another sit down and kind of maybe a, a semi-part two interview with him. And he also knows some other people in that industry and some amazing women artists in that industry, you know, that live over there. So I'm trying to kind of like branch off a little bit more and, and find people that are just, you know, doing places in, in Africa and London and Paris and South America. I have connections with people in Brazil through Capoeira. So I want to uh, document some of the Capoeira masters in, in different places of the world. Uh, so just just trying to like broaden it a little bit more and, and still document the, the same kind of theme of the elders, the jazz musicians and the people from my community. Right. So since I've been doing the ones with the people from my community, like everybody's kind of come out the woodwork, you know, after my first interview with like Rick and Yogi, I'm getting calls. They're like, yo, man, you talked about playing in the cage. You, why you didn't mention me? You know, I was a star in the cage, man. Like that's a, like a travesty that you didn't mention me in the cage. So in part two with Yogi, I had to mention uh, Titus Fisher, who's a, a, a legend from our, our community. But he was upset that I didn't mention him in the first one. And then everybody else is like, well, what about what's his name, man? You got to talk to him and him and him and you got to do that. So I'm still trying to do that with the people I grew up with. So just kind of sticking with my 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 the, the three things that I mentioned, yeah. you know, because I think those things are kind of like infinite possibilities. Right. And then starting to get the younger generation a little bit more interested as well. You know, so it's not just like old people telling stories like like. How do I get them more involved? So I do want to kind of reach out to the younger generation yeah. and find some interesting stories from like, like uh, maybe like high school kids yeah. to kind of bring in. So when I go to New York and I talk with Stan and his little crew, some of them are young, but they have like phenomenal stories like already. And they're only mm -hmm. like 18, 19, 20. Yeah. So I'm going to bring them in, maybe do like uh, a round table. And I think I kind of want to ex start exploring more round table discussions yeah. and see what that feels like. Um, but yeah, just kind of doing stuff and just keep grinding and, and kind of getting better at my craft, you know, better, better language, you know, learning when to cut in and, you know, pause and, you know, ask, you know, you know, more poignant questions and, and digging deeper on questions and, you know, when to pull back and when to push, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, just, just kind of learning more. Capoeira. 
the capoeira of, of yeah. podcasting. Yeah, yeah. When you, to go in, when to come out. And you know what I just realized with you saying all that, that what you're doing is you're making the hub that you've had, but it's it's a non-local hub. It's a it's a digital virtual hub that anyone right. can come join. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah. and it's, yeah. it's full of amazing masters and from all walks of life. And so I cannot recommend enough that the viewers and listeners go check out your podcast a long way from the block with Anthony Thomas, and that's available on all platforms, yep. but what's the best way if they want to just tune into your work more, maybe you could share with them just like what, what's the best place to go on socials to find you and all that. So for the podcast, I think, you know, most people go to my Apple and Spotify uh, platforms to just, you know, listen to the podcast. You know, you just type in a long way from the block. It'll it'll come right up. My whole template and everything will come up. And then socials, I'm probably more active on uh, Instagram uh, at a long way from the block. Uh, Episodes are every Monday. Uh, They go up first thing in the morning every Monday. So that keeps me really busy because <laughs> I got to get prepared, you know, through the week. Mondays come pretty fast. Yep. Uh, I'm on Facebook as well. Not as much. I think Facebook seems to be more for like my own community. My The people I grew up with seem to be pretty active there. Yeah. Uh, I'm there uh, uh, a long way from the block also as Anthony Thomas on there. But I think for the podcast, it's mostly on Instagram. So they can follow you on Instagram. They can obviously be subscribed either on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts to get new episodes every Monday. And then mm-hmm. oh, what's your website? So my website uh, just recently launched. It's it's probably like 90% done. But it's, I mean, it's good enough to check it out. It's withanthonythomas.com. Perfect. So www.withanthonythomas.com. And I'll put the links in the show notes for everybody. And man, Anthony, it, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for sharing so many gems and thank you for the wonderful podcast that you've produced because it's, um, it, I, I, you know, pride isn't the right word, but I, I do feel proud of mm-hmm working with someone of your caliber, yeah. you know, and having you putting out the, the, the level of quality that you are with such amazing guests and just your heart and mission and mood is it's an honor to get to know you and talk to you. And thank you for, for coming on Amplify What You Love and sharing a little bit about your story. I'm sure that the audience enjoyed it and hope to have you on again soon in the future, man. Yeah, man. I hope the audience appreciates it and, and can kind of like resonate with my with my story from the childhood you know because it's a big part of why i do what i do and you'll always be a part of the journey because you're part of the foundation of the journey and i'm so glad we got to do this in person so so much better i'm so glad i made it out here yeah as a final sign off you know time capsule if you could if you could give a room full of young people you know i won't put an age on it but just a room full of young people one 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 message from your life what would you say what would you share I would say value your parents and and listen to the wisdom that they give you, even if you disagree with it and find a passion and do it until the wheels fall off 100%. (laughs) Beautiful. Until next time, take care.